from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. recorded an interview with Patty Ray Tomarelli on April 11, 2016. Patty is a children's author who has written books from a Baha'i perspective that include such titles as Are You Happy? Maggie Celebrates a Yamiha? And Something Important. Something Important also has the little girl Maggie as the central character. We discuss Patty's work and have her read excerpts from her Maggie series. I started the interview by asking Patty where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Westchester, Pennsylvania, which was outside of Philadelphia, and um, it was back in 1952, and my parents were renting a, it would be like a car house on a huge estate, like a 500-acre estate. So as a kid, I just thought I was living in heaven. There were Greek statues we could roam around and woods, and there were carpenters who would sing to me. And so we lived there for five years. And what were your interests growing up? Well, I think I just liked singing and imagination. And I think I always liked theater, and I liked musicals. I liked sports, playing the sports and being with people. Probably enjoyed... uh, just imaginary type of things, you know. Mm. Um, I didn't really get into reading, which is interesting, until probably probably almost seventh grade. I really loved fantasy, but as a young kid, I loved fairy tales. And I think that in school at some point, I got the message that fairy tales were for little kids and you shouldn't be read- reading those things. But then in middle school, I discovered science fiction and fantasy, and I knew that was really the same thing, like A Wrinkle in Time and whatever else that was just fantastic. And my father would go to the li- take me to the library. We could take out these anthologies of science fiction writers, Ray Bar- Bradbury and other people. I think I got hooked at that point on the whole um, fiction world. Was writing an interest of yours at, at this age? Yeah. I think it happened somewhat time around 12 years old. I had gone to um, Greenacre Baha'i School, which is up in Maine. I was living in, at this point, I was living in Stanford, Connecticut. And it's a summer school, Baha'i summer school, where people get together and they talk about religion. And there was a lot of arts. And I think that was my huge exposure. People would come and play harpsichords. People would sing opera. And there was this one woman, her name's Mimi McClellan. And she would, I think by the time I was like 13, I was staying there for maybe a month or so. And she would put on these plays and she would just corral up people and just say, you can be part of the play and get them to do this. And I just thought this was the bomb. And so I thought, well, if she can write a play, I can write a musical. These are musicals. So I thought I can write a musical. I was just inspired. So I think over that next winter at home during school and whatnot, I decided I was going to write a musical, which I did. I think it was called, this is the 60s now. So it was called Flower Power. And it was about disunity in a garden. The weeds were taking over. And so, you know, 
this little girl comes into the garden and uh, she sings some really nice songs and she convinces everybody that, you know, there should be unity and they all needed to work together. <laughs> so for the next year, when I went back to Greenacre, this summer school, I got people to make costumes and I got people to sing the music and we put would put on these plays. And so, again, I just thought that was the most marvelous thing. And I, of course, got it. The community that would attend these sessions were just so supportive that I just got a lot of encouragement. And then the same woman, Mimi McClellan, who lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, she was one of these people who just, no matter what age you were, she saw you as a, a creative soul who had potential and a contribution. And so she invited me up to her house and she, because I really didn't know anything about music, and she transcribed my music. So I actually had sheet music for this this little musical. I think that just made me believe that I could, I could write, I could be creative, that this was just a natural expression of, you know, human spirit. And so I started writing little puppet shows and, you know, these musicals. And um, I think the way I dialogue was probably the thing I felt most comfortable with that, you know, moving a story forward through dialogue. Uh, did yeah. any of these things get published? No, just did the, I used to just crowd people up and, you know, we would put them on. It only got published off my own typewriter. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and I don't even know if I have a copy anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, Patty, did you grow up as a Baha'i? Mostly. My parents are of Catholic background. So one was Irish, one Italian. And I think by the time they got married, they had sort of fallen away from Catholicism. But I don't think they fell away from the idea of God or religion. When I was two years old, so that would have been 1954, my parents came in contact with other Baha'is, and they uh, became Baha'is. I was actually thinking about it, and there were probably two things that brought our family in contact with the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i community itself was looking for opportunities to share the teachings of the Baha'i faith with other people. And so they were part of a plan called the 10-Year Crusade. So they were very active in a you say doing outreach, but also being very active in uh, anything to do with racial unity, because that's one of the big teachings of the Baha'i faith is that mankind is one. So the Baha'is were out there. They were looking at civil rights issues, things around um, integration, integrating schools. And then the other thing that happened that year was Brown versus the Board of Education. So the Supreme Court decision had happened. And so my mother was very, she really believed in human rights. And so she was out in the community going door to door, just telling people to register their children at the nearest school. And if the people in the neighborhoods did that, the schools would be integrated. And because of these two events, my parents came in contact with Baha'is. And I think they took about a year to study the teachings of this religion and it made sense to them and i think it resonated with their hearts and so then we became baha'is now one of the primary principles of the baha'i faith is the independent investigation of truth that's right right so as you were growing up you were i I guess pretty much following your parents path in the baha'i faith but would you say there was a moment where you really felt that the Baha'i faith was your religion versus your parents' religion? 
Yeah, I was, it's funny. This weekend I was talking to somebody about this. For me, I think it was around the same time that this creative endeavor was going on in my early teens. And I at the in the Baha'i community or in the Baha'i faith, the age of 15 is considered the age of maturity. And so at that time you decide, am I going to be a Baha'i or not? I was thinking about this and I was trying to filter, you know, is this because... Do I do I consider myself a Baha'i because my parents are Baha'is? Is this really true? And just trying to examine it, you know, logically from every different angle. And so I got to the point where I had sort of decided that all the teachings of Baha'i faith made sense. So I didn't have a problem because it talked about the uh, recognition of all the religions, that all these divine teachers were from God, and it has principles like the equality of women and men, and science and religion should agree. So this made sense to me. But then I evolved to the next level was what if there wasn't a God? Now, if there was no God, then all this sort of wasn't going to be true. So I tried to wrestle with the concept of God, and I didn't go very far with it because I also had a, somehow I had an understanding that a lesser being can't understand a greater being or the, that which is created can't understand the creator. And so I knew I was at a dead end. So what I did was I decided to place my bet on God's side and that it would either work out or it wouldn't. And after that point, having made that decision, somehow I think I just stepped into what we would call certitude. I just all of a sudden saw the evidences of God. So I think the lesson for me was it wasn't something I was going to know through my brain because my brain had certain limitations, but it was something I could understand with my heart. Once I just made that decision, it became really clear that it was my decision, that I was responsible for my spiritual future, and that... um, I would be supported. So so I think it was really the awakening of my spiritual life. Did you take your love of musicals and writing, did you take that uh, with you into adulthood and did that flourish? I did, yeah. I think when I was raising my children, um, I had a wonderful sort of community of other artists who were just very encouraging and we wanted to make a contribution to the sort of Baha'i culture and we wanted our children to have books but you know the Baha'i faith is fairly small numerically and there's not a lot of children's books and I thought well maybe this is a place I could make a contribution so the first book I I think my kids were this was about 1992 so my two I have three children two boys and a daughter my first book was called Are You Happy and it's a picture book about um, Abdu'l-Bahá. Now, Abdu'l-Bahá is the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'lláh. And uh, he had traveled to America to share the teachings of his father's faith. He has written quite a bit, very much in a Western style. And so I think many Baha'is really have a very strong love for Abdu'l-Bahá. I thought, I wanted to teach my children about Abdu'l-Bahá. And one of the things that Abdu'l-Bahá had would often ask people as they as he traveled was are you happy and he would also say if you're not happy in this day what day are you waiting for this idea of being happy you know really grabbed my attention so I wrote a very very simple book about Abdu'l-Bahá wherever he went whatever he whoever he met 
he would ask them, are you happy? And so that was my first publishing. And then I took that book and I, uh, or the manuscript, I didn't, I'm not an illustrator. I sent it to the few Baha'i publishers and I uh, got, re- learned how to get rejected, <laughs> but people would write these beautiful, encouraging, like we're just a small publisher. We publish two you know, children's books a year, and we have a list of 20, but then there'd be this wonderful encouragement. And then they'd suggest another place to go. And I'd do that and similar things. So while my writing was getting um, the, I guess, the benefit of editing and questions, and that was, this is all new to me. You know, I didn't go to school to be a writer. I, I it was just doing it sort of what my heart was and was telling me to do. And so eventually um, there was a publisher coming out of England. It's called One World. And they had, at that time, had just decided they wanted to try to get in the children's market. So my book was actually selected. I can remember getting, you know, being so excited about that, right? But publishing, I'll tell you, takes forever. It's the slowest process. Well, maybe there's slower processes, but it's really... You have to be patient. And probably if you're a wise writer, you have a lot of things in the work. So you're not thinking about when you're going to get an answer. So it took a while. And then finally, I got these, um, you know, I got the contract and I figured out what does this mean? And, you know, tried to figure out what, how to read the contract. And then, and then I got the uh, copies of what the illustrations were. And that was my first, like, big surprise. I mean, we had done some, with the editor, some word tweaking. And because it was British, they wanted to use some British words where I had maybe had American words. But the illustrations threw me. It was just not the style I had imagined. And, and now it is the style that the book is, you know, so I don't have any problem with it. But at the time, I can remember crying and thinking, no. And of course, I had no rights over the illustrations. So I was learning about that part, too. So the book book got published, you know, a very small run, probably 2,000 copies. One of the things I did, I was living in southern New Hampshire, and I thought, well, Barnes & Noble supports local authors. I'm going to see if they're going to let me do something. So I called them up. It was in September. And I said, I'm a local author. Is there something we can do together? And they said, sure, come on down. You know, we'll, we'll give you a table. We'll make up a sign. I said, and they couldn't even get my book through their distribution. They said, just bring the book. I said, don't you want to read it? <laughs> they said, no, just bring the book. We don't care. So I was like really surprised. And part of it, I think, that gave me the courage was I just this was an experiment. So there's a book about a religious figure, Abdu'l-Bahá. Would other people be interested in it? It was really the question I was posing and trying to see. So it was a beautiful I remember this day very clearly. It was beautiful outside. There were very few people in the store, but they set me up. They gave me a beautiful Barnes & Noble sign with my name on it. Over the microphone, you would hear, Are you happy? Abdu'l-Bahá asked the children. Come here, Patty, to tell a story about Abdu'l-Bahá, or something like that. So this one woman came over, and she said, she looked at the book and said, Is this religious? And I said, oh, well, you know, it doesn't have a lot of words in it. You could just read it and tell, tell me what you think. And then she bought it. So I thought, okay, I guess this does have a broader range than just the Baha'i community and children. So then the next that day, I think I sold maybe three books or something, uh, but they connected me to another Barnes & Noble that had a story hour. So this was in Manchester, New Hampshire. The first one was in Nashua. So like maybe a month later, I went up to the story hour and there were like 
you know, six or seven parents with their children. And we had a stack of books. And I had been thinking, how am I going to explain who Abdu'l-Bahá is to people who don't know who Abdu'l-Bahá is? And so I had sort of figured out a little explanation about how Abdu'l-Bahá was the son of Baha'u'lláh, that the family had been put into prison, and Abdu'l-Bahá was only nine years old. And when they were released from prison because of the um, turnover of the Ottoman Empire, he was now like in his 50s. And I had a picture of what he looked like and really looks sort of like a grandfatherly, older gentleman. That was sort of the brief explanation. After I read the story, a mother looked at me and said, well, why did you write about Abdu'l-Bahá? And I was not prepared. And so I fumbled an answer, which I can't even remember. But it probably said something like, well, I'm a member of the Baha'i faith. And Abdu'l-Bahá is a really important central figure of the Baha'i faith. But on the way home, I was like, oh, I can't. That wasn't the right answer. You know, I was just struggling, struggling with thinking, what was the right answer? Something, And I learned sometimes when things are so personal, it's hard to explain it to other people. I think about it like a week later. And, and this happens to me frequently. I'll... I'll have a problem and I'll just wake up in the morning and sort of have an answer. But I don't know when that's going to happen. So this it was about a week. I've been pondering it and probably praying about it. The answer was, if I had just said, I wrote about Abdu'l-Bahá because he's my hero, that was a universal concept that everybody would have understood. And I thought, okay. And I think that is in line with my interest in some, you know, what are the simple truths? What are the basic concepts? And I think that lends itself also to anyone who's interested in writing for children to really be able to simplify things down to their purest form. So you learned a lot from this experience. Oh, I certainly did. And then probably a couple years later. So now I'm thinking I'm a writer and I got, you know, <laughs> I, I can do this, you know, and, um, but the, I have to say the experience of writing the first book, are you happy? was like, Oh, it's, it's not all that it's cracked up to be, you know, that, you know, just because you've written it doesn't mean people are going to buy it and, and read it. You know, publishing has taken a lot, is very different than it was, say, back in the 50s, 40s, and the early part of the century when children's literature really was taking off. And so, you know, it was so, there are other ways it was a little disappointing. And I, but that disappointment led me to find other people who were interested in writing spiritually based material for children. And so I connected with other people in this basically in the Maine and New Hampshire area. And we got together and, you know, we we sad or complained and then said, well, what are we going to do about it? And so we came up with what we thought was very logical. We said, well, we're, let's put on a workshop. So that brings me back to Greenacre by High School. And we said, we want, we, we, let's approach Greenacre and ask them if they would allow us to put on a workshop for people, who, artists who are interested in producing materials for children. So they said yes. And we, we put together a program because we figured what's the best way to know about, find out something, put on a workshop. <laughs> and we had a, probably somebody from a local bookstore come over and talk about publishing and trends in children's literature. And I remember in the early years, because after the one time we did it, we did it, we continued to do it up to this year. So I think we're on our maybe 20th anniversary of putting on what we call ourselves was Spirit of Children. And we've been putting on these workshops. And so this collaboration of people of, variety of backgrounds from writers to musicians it's just so enriching and supportive and i think anybody particularly artists need to have community of some sort people who are just there to listen to your first draft 
people to encur- see that, that there's a spark in that and to help encourage you and help you really hone your skills, you know. So we, this little group just bonded and became just a really a cheer, cheerleader team for each other and um, encouraging each other for, you know, further endeavors. Because sometimes when you're writing, your family doesn't particularly get it, nor do they care. <laughs> They want you to be happy, but they might not necessarily understand how important <laughs> this is to you. And so it's nice to have some kindred spirits who are also do, sort of struggling with the same type of thing. So I, I would say a little bit after I did um, this Are You Happy book, I had heard someone say, oh, there's no Baha'i children's literature that has people in it. They're like, they're, now that might not be true. There probably could have been, but this person didn't know of any. There are a lot of stories with rabbits and bunnies and gardens and sort of using different metaphors that talk about the oneness of mankind. And so I thought, oh, that's a challenge. I could try to do that. One of the Baha'i holy days is called a Yamiha, and it's a day of giving, and it's it's actually four to five days of giving. And it's just, I think it's one of probably the most accessible Baha'i holy day. A lot of times children will share that at school. It happens in February when there's not a whole lot of stuff going on. And I thought, I would really like to think about a child who celebrates this day by giving and does it on her own. So it's not about the gifts she's getting. And I think I was very shaped by the time, I was probably, this is now probably in the late 80s, where we were really, as a society, evolving into a very child-centric society. And so I was thinking about this quality of generosity and giving and not being dependent on everybody around you for your own happiness. I don't, I can't really tell you how the character came to me, but this little girl named Maggie came to me. I thought, well, how would she do it? How would she celebrate? And that's sort of, as I explored that idea, how she would celebrate each day of Yamiha, which would be like four days. That's how the story evolved. And I have to say something else about my upbringing. You know, when my parents left Catholicism, they they still celebrated things like Christmas and, and probably Easter, although I don't really remember that too much. But I do remember Christmas. And then at some point, they stopped celebrating Christian holidays. And we would celebrate Baha'i holidays, but it was usually in the community. It wasn't in our home. And in a way, there just became sort of a blank canvas. And at the time, I think I was very sad about that as a child. But later, as an adult, when I was trying to figure out how I was going to celebrate these days with um, my own children, it because it, I wasn't imitating anything that my parents had done, it left me open to really just have a free imagination. So now I'm very happy for what they did because it was sort of like they broke away from a the past of tradition and of the past and they by just breaking away they left everything open for for new things to happen without you know just be a repetition of what other people were doing is there an excerpt from uh your first maggie book that you'd like to to read sure i will you know children's books picture books traditionally go 32 pages (laughs) and they're not a lot of words so i'm just going to read i'll just read the first couple of pages so the book is called maggie celebrates a yamiha very late in the afternoon of the 25th day of february maggie hurried down the stairs 
put on her coat, hat, and mittens, and slipped out the back door. She ran down the street to the neighborhood park and headed towards the highest hill. Quickly, she climbed to the top. From the smallest pocket in her pants, Maggie took out the compass her grandfather had given her and carefully lined up the needle to N for north and saw which way was W for west, faced the sun and waited. Soon it began. On the horizon, colors collided. Reds, yellows, purples, and oranges. The sun was setting. First a shine, then a glow and a glimmer, and then a few solitary rays. When Maggie was sure that the sun had set, she threw back her head, raised her arms, and cried, My God, my fire, my light, the days which thou hast named the Ayamiha in thy book have begun. And then Maggie did the dance of jubilation. And that's how Maggie welcomed the first day of Ayamiha. And then it goes <laughs> and then it goes on to now, how she does every other day. How old were your children when you when you wrote that book? Well, let's see. This was published in 1992. So my my sons were in their teens, and my daughter was probably in her about 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So was there any interaction between uh, the storytelling of Maggie and, and your 10-year-old? You know, not that much, except yeah. she thinks she's inspired it, <laughs> which oh. may, may or may not be true. I'm not right. sure. Right. <laughs> You know, I don't think I tried it out on her. I think mm. uh, the writing was very much probably writing to my own inner child. You know, she's always she actually went on to go to school for theater at Boston University. So she was actually she and she is now my best editor. I don't know. She just has a great brain for looking at what's the main storyline and have you gone off on a tangent? You know, <laughs> that's very interesting, but really has nothing to propel the story forward. <laughs> mm. So she's been very very helpful. So what was your next Maggie book? Well, after the book ends with her thinking about Naruse, which is the behind New Year. And so I actually very quickly wrote that. And then it didn't, it actually went nowhere, that book. Um, It went through an editing process. I mean, I was working with the same editor I'd worked with the first Maggie book. The process for me was to first you get it edited and then it gets sort of presented to a marketing department. And because it's such a small publishing company that I was working with and the market for the children is even smaller. And then the market around a Baha'i holy day is even a smaller market. It wasn't something that was really financially viable for them. So I had the really the blessing of working with an editor and we polished up the manuscript and uh, got it in its best. And then it, it's, it was actually rejected. And so I was like, oh, so sad. So um, I sort of like put it aside and said, you know, sometimes things aren't timely. Maybe you've created something or worked on a project and you just have to see where it sits. So then I went on to write a a second book about Maggie. And this one was called Something Important. And it was about um, Maggie. She's like in second grade, right? She's asked to bring something important to school something that would be like a memento, something to represent her family. And uh, Maggie loves to pray. And so she she prays about what is this thing that she should you know, bring. And so finally she decides it's her prayer beads. And one of the things that Baha'is do is they say, Alawapa, which means God is most glorious. And so Maggie would say, Alawapa, like nine times every morning. So she said, I'm going to bring my prayer beads. So finally... 
you know, becomes time for her to share. And she realizes she shares her prayer beads and what she says. And the whole class is looking at her like, what? <laughs> and then she realizes they don't know what a lawapa is. And so she shares it with them and they're cool with that. <laughs> and so then she goes home and she shares with her friends, you know, on her way to school, she has a, has a pattern that she stops in and says hi to people. On her way home, she does the same. Patty didn't have the book Something Important with her when we recorded the interview. She later recorded a reading from the story. She refers to an Arabic phrase, Alawapa, in the reading of the story. This phrase is often used by Baha'is to greet one another. The translation of the phrase is, God is most glorious. It's a reference to the name of Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. Here is Patty reading from her work, Something Important. Something important. It was Monday morning. The sun was shining and Maggie was ready to start her day. Alawapa, said Maggie as she hopped down the stairs. Alawapa, said Freddie as soon as he heard his sister. Alawapa, said Mother as she poured the coffee. Alawapa, said Father as he buttered the toast. And that is how Maggie and her family said good morning. Maggie quickly ate her breakfast and left for school. Good morning, said Maggie to Mrs. O'Sullivan, who was outside watering her plants. Good morning, sweetie, responded Mrs. O'Sullivan with a smile and a wave. Good morning, Maggie said to Mrs. Olasky, who was just opening up the store. Good morning, Maggie, she replied. Meow, said Maggie to Morgan the cat, who was warming himself in the sun. Morgan purred back. Meow, as he stretched and yawned and stretched again. Tristan the dog was busy sniffing the ground, but he looked up and barked, woof, 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 barked Mar Maggie in response. And that's how Maggie walked to school. Upon entering her classroom, Maggie greeted Mrs. Emmons, who was writing very important things on the board. Good morning, Mrs. Emmons. Mrs. Emmons kept on writing and said, good morning, Maggie. Are you ready to learn? Mrs. Edmonds asked the same question every morning. Maggie sat down next to her friends, Lou and Mateo. They said hi at the same time. And that's how Maggie started her school day. At the end of the day, Mrs. Emmons said, Attention class, tomorrow I want you to bring in a memento, something that is very important to you. When you tell us about it, we'll learn something new about you. Lewis scrunched up her nose and her hand flew up. I don't get it. What's a memento? Mrs. Edmonds pointed to her purple pin. This is my memento. It's something that is very important to me. Is that why you wear it every day? asked Mateo. Yes, Mateo. This pin reminds me of people I love. My mother gave it to me when I went away to school to become a teacher. And her mother gave it to her when she got married. And my great-grandmother gave it to my grandmother when she had her first baby. So when I wear this pin, I remember all these people. That's why I wear it close to my heart. When the clock struck 3.30, Mrs. Edmund said, See you tomorrow, class. Remember your mementos. Everyone said at the same time, Goodbye, Mrs. Edmonds. And the class was dismissed. Maggie was in a hurry to get home. Woof, said Tristan. Maggie answered woof. Meow, said Morgan. Maggie replied meow. 
She said hi to Mrs. Olasky, who was sweeping the sidewalk. She waved at Mrs. O'Sullivan, who was digging in the garden. When she finally reached home, she went straight to her room and began searching for something important. I need to find something that tells everyone about me, thought Maggie. She looked in her toolbox. No, that wasn't what she was looking for. She looked at her wand and crown. No, she looked all around. It had to be as important as Mrs. Edmund's pin. Maggie searched and searched and searched. Nothing. Maggie decided that she needed help, so she folded her arms across her chest, closed her eyes, and said in a loud, sincere voice, Alawapa, Alawapa, Alawapa. And when she opened her eyes, she saw what she wanted right next to her on the nightstand. Her prayer beads were resting there. They were important. They would definitely tell the class something about Maggie and her family. Maggie picked them up and said, thank you. And that story was really exploring um, sometimes when you belong to a, a religion where you are not the majority, you can feel sort of isolated. And um, sometimes you explore your culture only within your family, right? But when you leave the, the doors of your house, you might leave your religion behind or your culture behind in order to try to integrate in the greater society. So this was a little girl who just assumed her culture was everyone's culture, comes in contact with perhaps it's not. But then because of her incredibly positive outlook on life, she just figures she's just going to welcome people and bring her into the, her life and share her faith with them in that very simple kind of way. So then I have some other stories about Maggie doing other things, but they're still in the works. I'm contemplating um, doing maybe some self-publishing or trying to collaborate with some other people. But, you know, another actually one of the things I am working on is a book about two figures in the Baha'i faith, um, Louis Gregory and his wife, Louise Gregory. They were married. She was British and white, and he was African-American, and they got married in their 40s at a time when it would have been illegal for many people to marry, you know, interracially. And um, it just fascinated with their life. And I thought their marriage was one of such equality in, in terms of gender and race. And these are very contemporary issues. And their love for each other and for the Baha'i faith, I think, real, and for Abdu'l-Baha, I think um, really just solidified. There were no, like, it was just a circle of this love that propelled them. And so I've been working on this, but it's been a big challenge because I've, you know, working in fiction, you can just make it up. You have to tell the truth in either genre, but you can tell the truth in fiction in one way. But when you're doing in nonfiction, what I'm being challenged with is um, really telling their story without too much interpretation. And so while I have some documents, there's little gaps of things I don't know, and I have to figure out how to tell the story um, with it, either without the information or how to tell it in a way that's um, going to make sense. And I'm writing for an older audience. It would probably be a, a junior youth audience. So I've thrown myself into a little bit difficult situation, <laughs> which hopefully I'll rise to the challenge. <laughs> right. Well, that must be quite a challenge to go from a children's book to a young adult book. 
Yeah, well, you know, I'm still not quite sure because it's in the raw stage. And one of the things I found fascinating is when you're doing research, you can just get lost in the research. And I suppose there's a time where you just stop and you, you know, tell the story as best you can. I have a lot of letters and they're written, you know, this is, it's such a blessing because people wrote letters and they were detailed letters. You know, they'd report about their life and their day. And they might even be letters that happen one day after another if someone was traveling. So you get a real sense of that person's life. But it's really difficult because I write really tiny. And some of the people, their hand, it's hard to decipher what their their words are. So that's just the you know, the nuts and bolts of trying to find out um, details. And you don't know where the gem is, right? Mm-hmm. It could just be a little detail that you find out that somebody liked lemonade. But there's that detail that you now can include that makes that person from the past seem real. So I've been doing a lot of trying to really read a lot of other picture book biographies because I think mm-hmm. I'm thinking in terms of picture book, which would be, again, back to a younger audience. So you can see I haven't decided quite yet who the story is for right. and how I'm going to write it and how much detail, you know, what I need to uh, include in order to connect people with their lives. And this is where my daughter comes in hand, where she just says, you don't need a lot of, you can just pick a short part of their their life. And so for me, it's probably from the time they became Baha'is, because neither of them had been raised in the Baha'i faith, and they then met each other. Neither of them expected to get married. And then they were introduced and became the best of friends. And then an idea was presented to them that perhaps they should marry. And I think they chewed that over for a while, knowing that it would be because of the situation of race, really, in the country at that time, it would be a big challenge. They decided that they wanted to do that, and they took on that challenge. And probably that would be from the beginning to the end of the story, their marriage, the actual day of their wedding. So, you know, but some different writers come about their stories in different ways. And for me, it's usually the story tells itself. So I think I need to send myself away for about a week and just write write that story. Like George Martin, just write the story. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you with your projects you have going forward. Yeah, I do. Life is very busy, and I think that's my, uh, again, my challenge. And knowing where you're going. I mean, I was reflecting this weekend about just sort of writing, and when you you know, you know have something you think is important, you, you carve out time. You make sure it happens. And if you're inspired, you make sure it happens. And I'm somewhere in a lull, creative lull, and I'm contemplating, oh, is this just it? You know, maybe this is it. I wrote the stories I could write, and there's nothing more. And then you contacted me, actually, and I (laughs) thought, okay, maybe it's not. Maybe I have to continue back doing the writing I need to do and struggle through it. I have found just going away for a weekend or a week is really helpful being away from uh, family and all the other loving distractions that you have in your life and just doing that work, uh, seeing it through. Well, Patty, thank you so much for sharing your life and your work and Maggie with us. Oh, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Patty Ray Tomarelli, a Baha'i author who has published the children's books, Are You Happy? 
Maggie celebrates a yamiha and something important. Something important also has the little girl Maggie as the central character. You can find our books on the website bahaibookstore.com. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
No doubt. No, 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 no doubt. Differentiated the many ways to raise it. Cause losing the weight and the making only hurts where you wanna take it. I've been giving something I should hold sacred. And if I don't take it, then this opportunity goes wasted. It's so basic, the meaning is made with a gesture. Invaded from the West and demonstrated with aggression. Feel the trace of the weapon, it reiterates a message. A little bit of effort for the outline of session. It's now time to let it begin. Head to the wind, the second I stand, see less of a plan, it don't matter though. In that direction lies the answer, so you have to go. And for protection's sake, you never take the path and hold. Let the method make you less, and then you'll be the last to know. Some of us have nothing, but a word will make us have it all. Pass it all, time to focus now, that's what we spoke about. Scoping out the whole zone now, no doubt. No doubt, time to mellow out, mellow out. Dark space, a wave it in, vacillating Half a day wasted, asking a favor of validation A plate of the base, nature rate the arms in my low end Chrome plated and shown places they afraid to go in a 21st century fox rocking the lambs Wore the song channel, the palm planted on the handle The panel host supposedly channeled the Holy Ghost I'm down with you, stand close and get your crown rose You heard, sir, prefer a touch of swerving the verb I learned respect come first and the chat come third Now what's the worth of a bush full of birds Took the one you done 
snatch when every last one come when I clap. And they would promise on it, some punish for that. Seen it happen at the pinpoint, pushed in the map. Traveling the globe around, loaded so I know what it's about. Throw a spark and turn the corners to vow. No doubt. No doubt. No doubt. Time to mellow out. Wow. 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 Yeah, I burn a few waiting on my turn in certitude, searching for a heaven ever since. Interring Gertrude with the pin of words to the dirge and dreamt of the image of innocence, intense. But forgive my indifference. There's something about I heard it before. You all the same, and I told her we never spoken, so you must be mistaken. I thought maybe she turned away for modesty's sake. Yet as she wept, I saw my name alone the nape of her neck. But pardon, I pleaded. Evidently, she and I were friends with tense straps between this apparition and the one then would have been little more than the bench had I. Not mention, I'ma let feelings start creeping in. The act reciprocated when the weight stacked, bent like a paperback. Get away, the kid made tracks. Afraid to speak a name, vaguely I recall the beacon faith. Let me hold out, I'm off to slower now, no doubt. Uh. Lost touch, but never lost hope. Found direction and respect for the presence. Crossroads, guilt gone. So will be the hill the house is built on. Matters not infinite. My sinner swimming the simmer on. Agent, they disintegrate. All the weak of dust. Fall the touch. Wait until the wind pick up. It's possibly your progeny in the gust. Blowing about when he show, pulling photos out. No doubt.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.